Well, it is a privilege to join you again. I, um, I intend to do not much more this evening than to introduce First John to you, uh, providing you a bit of background and then introducing you to the first five verses. It's worth reminding ourselves um, to whom John was writing. Almost certainly he's writing to Christians in what was in the first century called Asia, Asia Minor, the western third of modern Turkey. It was called Asia Minor because it was the first part of the Roman Empire, the first part of Asia that the Roman Empire got hold of. Uh, It was bequeathed to them, in fact, by a king who died in Pergamum about 133 B.C. And this part of the empire had seen Christianity explode in it um, how the first gospel, how the gospel first got there, we don't know. But Paul spent about two and a half years there, from about um, the fall of fifty-two to the spring of fifty-five. And during that time, the gospel was well and truly established. And from Ephesus, the core city on the coast, the gospel sprang out to the whole area of the seven churches: Hierapolis, Laodicea, and so on. All the churches that we read about in Revelation two and three including some that, as far as we know, Paul never himself visited. Um, There's no evidence that he ever visited Colossae, for example, but that was one of the church plants from Ephesus. Eventually, Paul wrote our letter to the Colossians to them and so forth. Uh, So this became a really, really important um, section for him. At the same time, Paul, returning from his third missionary journey, stops in Miletus, the, uh, the, the port right on the sea. Ephesus was a little way inland. Uh, the port right on the sea, just a few miles to the south, in order to speak to the Ephesian elders. You can find that address in Acts chapter 20. And there he says, among other things, that he knows full well that after he's gone, after he's left them, there are going to be savage wolves, he says, even from among your own number, who will ravage the flock of God, therefore be on your guard, and so forth. Then about uh, A.D. 61, he writes his letter to the Colossians, and part of what he's doing is, is refuting what has come to be called the Colossian heresy. So there have been major troubles that have settled in into this region of some sort or another. And then in one of the saddest lines in all of Paul's writings in the New Testament, in 2 Timothy 1.15, he says, You are aware of the fact that all those who are in Asia have turned away from me. Now, that might be slight hyperbole, and it might not mean that they've all become heretics. It might mean that they've become disaffected with Paul in part because they find him a little angular. The persecution is breaking out a bit by this time, and Paul is not known to be the most diplomatic soul in the entire universe. There are some pastors who manage to keep a lower profile and keep under the radar, whereas he gets in trouble, and those with him seem also to get in trouble. Some wag has said that everywhere he goes, he starts either revival um, or, or, or uh, uh, an incarceration, and, um, and sometimes both. And, and so um, uh, it may be that some turned away from him just because they found him too angular, not easy to get along with. I don't know. But nevertheless, it's pretty sad, isn't it, when the man who has been most instrumental under God for bringing Christianity into a whole region nevertheless um, finds people turning their backs on him? Although historically, that's happened again and again and again. In the great evangelical awakening, so-called, 
um, both in the UK and in North America. One of the leaders in North America was a chap called Jonathan Edwards, and he was used of God to lead a powerful movement of reformation uh, in the 18th century. And um, four years later, he was kicked out of his church, um, which God used in a wonderful way to, uh, to, to, to other ends. But nevertheless, it couldn't have been easy to, to live through at the time. Um, uh, people are fickle. Circumstances change. You can have a great movement of the Spirit of God and then, and then face division. Just because you've enjoyed some real revival doesn't mean there are no temptations, no difficulties, no challenges down the road. And, and already those sorts of phenomena you already find in the New Testament itself. But it appears that a bit of a turnaround came after A.D. 70. A.D. 70 is the fall of Jerusalem, the so-called Jewish war from about 66 to 73. And um, during that time, the Christians who were in the Jerusalem area scattered. Among them, John. Now, some of this evidence is not found in the New Testament. It's found in extra-biblical sources, but it's probably pretty accurate. Philip the Evangelist also scattered with his four daughters, and John went to the Ephesus area. He settled in this region and exercised a kind of pastoral oversight over the entire area, and he seems to have brought a lot of things back together. Now, he was the last of the apostolic eyewitnesses. All the rest had either died or been martyred, moved away, Some of them we have only sketchy news about. Almost certainly Thomas got the gospel as far as India. Peter is long dead, and so is Paul. This is probably written about A.D. 90, give or take. He's an old man at this juncture. But it's worth remembering that as the last of the apostolic band of eyewitnesses, he must have had a certain kind of incredible personal authority at that juncture. People could be in touch with a man who touched Jesus. Moreover, it's worth remembering that one of his disciples was Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna. He died in A.D. 155. And another was Papias, And one of their disciples was Irenaeus of Lyon. He died about 180. Now, the reason I mention those arcane historical details is because so much of what we learn about the early church comes from Irenaeus and the writers just before him. And then you have to remember that although you go from roughly 0 BC when Jesus is born to the death of Irenaeus in 180, it's actually only two generations John living to the 90s, mid-90s, two of his disciples living to about 150, and one of his disciples who becomes astonishingly prolific living to 180. And, and thus, you're not talking about a lengthy uh, period of oral tradition where there are no records and then things get lost in oblivion and so on. This emphasis on eyewitness connection is really strong in this little letter, as we'll see in a few moments, and it has a bearing on our own faith. In the 4th century, Jerome, we don't know if the story is true or not, but in the 4th century, he tells a story. In his commentary on Galatians, 
he says that the blessed John the Evangelist, that is our John here, when he was an old man and could no longer speak in public, would sometimes be carried into the local assembly where he simply said, my dear children, love one another. My dear children, love one another. Now, we don't know the story's true. It's, it's, you know, two and a half centuries later. But on the other hand, it's the sort of thing that I could believe uh, just from reading this book. He was then asked, according to Jerome, why do you keep saying uh, love one another? And he replied, because it is the Lord's command, and if this only is done, it is enough. Now then, let's... That's the historical frame, but it's the theological background that is uh, more important to us if we're to understand this book aright and see how it is to be applied to our own lives. There are two or three things happening all at once. One is the death of the first generation of apostles. John is the last one. So you have the death of the first eyewitnesses, but you still don't have a complete, universally agreed New Testament. Now, clearly, Paul's letters are circulating, the Gospels are circulating, but how much of them are all sort of circulating together in one book, that's not nearly so clear. It's not as if there was an agreed canon, a New Testament canon that could solve everything. So if there's something disputed, let's go back to the book. Well, the book for the first century Christians, first of all, was the Old Testament. And then the rising number of books that were added that came to be called collectively the New Testament. But you're in this awkward transition between the first apostolic witnesses, between the writers of these books and their friends who also helped write them, like Luke, who was not himself um, uh, an, an, apostol- an apostolic witness. And, and, um, and, and yet the, the canon itself not yet closed and complete. And in this awkward transition, then there was always the possibility of wheels coming off, doctrinally or other ways. People claiming some insight into the deep things of God. um, People throwing their weight around in order to gain um, influence in one fashion or another, or in some cases to make a lot of money. Um, All of those things surface in the pages of the New Testament. Read the pastoral epistles, for example, or read 3 John, where you uh, come across a chap who who just loves to be first, and as a result, he's not listening even to apostolic witnesses. So all those sorts of motives could could, uh, generate their own problems a little more easily in this period of time when there was a certain amount of flux still going on. At the same time, there was the rise of a major heresy. The most important heresy the church faced, the most dangerous heresy the first chase, the, the, the church faced until the rise of post-enlightenment uh, modernism. And there are all kinds of things that one can learn from this movement. The movement has come to be called Gnosticism. In John's day, full-blown Gnosticism wasn't quite there yet. It became far more dangerous in the 2nd and 3rd century. Gnosticism, the word comes from gnosis, which simply means knowledge. And those who claimed to be Gnostics claimed to have some special knowledge that gave them an inside track into the Bible and into God and into who Jesus was and what he had done and so forth. Full-blown Gnosticism had its own redeemer myth and so on that surfaces in the second century. There's no evidence of it here. Nevertheless, underlying Gnosticism, we'll sometimes call it pre, 
Gnosticism or early Gnosticism or proto-Gnosticism, the, the movements are already there, underlying it is something that returns in the history of the church again and again and again. In the first century, it was the impact uh, philosophically of Neoplatonism. Now, in Neoplatonism, one of the things that begins to surface is that, from about 200 years before Christ, is, is that matter is intrinsically something that you should be suspicious of, and that which is spiritual is good. Now, that's not very common in our generation, but even in your parents' generation or their parents' generation, something of that same sort of impact was not completely unknown. Um, So that it is very, very spiritual, for example, to have semi-mystical experiences of Jesus and so on, but playing a game of football can't be spiritual. That's, That's physical. Some of some of this dichotomy between what's spiritual and what's material is bound up with the common use of the word flesh in the New Testament. Flesh over against spirit. So flesh then gets connected with everything fleshly, physical, or sexual, or the like. And so we begin to have our suspicions about sex, or even marriage, um, uh, nowadays, uh, that's not a dominant problem in the Western world, but but it, it has been at various times in the history of the church. That which is material, you have to be suspicious of. That which is non-material is intrinsically good. Whereas when you stop to think about it, the non-material can be intrinsically bad. Just ask any passing demon. And meanwhile, God is the God of a very physical creation. He invented marriage, not us. And, and godliness in the scriptures, both in the Old Covenant and, the new, and in the New, is bound up very much with relationships and integrity and right dealings in the physical world and the spiritual relationships and so on. There's, there's one whole ordered uh, unity. So the ultimate Christian hope is not an airy-fairy heaven when you die, where you sit around on puffy clouds and wear white nightgowns and play harps and are thoroughly immaterial. The ultimate Christian hope is a new heaven and a new earth with resurrection bodies. And it's right on the edge of our peripheral vision. We can't see very clearly what it looks like, but it is more than merely ethereal existence or the like. But if you push this notion far enough that matter is intrinsically bad, you can see right away that it's going to have major impact on a lot of basic Christian doctrines. For example, how about the doctrine of creation? By the second century, Gnostics were so embarrassed by the doctrine of creation that instead of saying there is a God, one God who made everything, They said there is one God who is so far removed from this nasty, miserable, material world that he made other gods who made other gods who made other gods and lesser gods, all the way down to one called the Demi-Urgos. And he's the one that made this physical world. But then again, what you're really doing is, is... is saying that this physical world is intrinsically bad and God, who is good, is, is immaterial and o- over there some way, f- much farther removed than, than the Demiurgos who is near us, who really can't quite be trusted. What do you do with the doctrine of the incarnation? The word became flesh and lived for a while among us? 
How could that be a godly thing to do? How about the doctrine of the resurrection? Jesus comes back from the dead and actually eats food and is touched and handled. But surely, 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 if he were really, really, really godly, he'd be immortal, but not physical. He would have enduring eternal existence after he had died, but not be physical. To have a doctrine of resurrection is crass. It's, it's almost barbaric. It's certainly vulgar. And, and so the resurrection gets reinterpreted, and on and on and on. Doctrine after doctrine that get gradually, gradually whittled away. That's why even in an earlier decade of the New Testament, when 1 Corinthians is written in the 50s, um, again, the impact of some of this Neoplatonic suspicion of matter surfaces in 1 Corinthians 15 in the resurrection chapter. Okay, they'd force themselves to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. Okay, I mean, there's eyewitnesses and all that. We have to believe that. But that doesn't mean we all actually believe that we will rise from the dead. Paul spends an entire chapter saying, no, no, it doesn't work like that. If Christ rose from the dead, then of course we will too. He's just the first fruit of the big harvest. You guys are so suspicious of Christ not rising, of Christ rising from the dead. He said, but, but supposing Christ hasn't written, what would this mean? And then he gives the entailments of what it would mean if Christ is not really risen from the dead. It utterly destroys Christianity. Four or five years ago, the then primate of the Anglican Church in Australia, living in Perth, was asked on national radio, um, supposing we found the tomb of Jesus and by whatever scientific means discovered that this really was in truth the tomb of Jesus and Jesus' body is in it, what would that do for your faith? He said, oh, it wouldn't do anything for my faith because Jesus has risen in my heart. Paul said, if Christ be not risen, your faith is vain. You're your, your faith is useless if faith's object is not true. The validity of faith does not depend in the first instance on your sincerity. It depends in the first instance on the truthfulness of that in which you repose your faith, on the truthfulness of faith's object. In fact, he goes so far as to say, we are of all men most to be pitied if Christ is not risen from the dead. That is, your life is a joke and you should be pitied because because you're believing stuff that isn't true. That's not honorable. It's not spiritual. It, it's, it's not rich. It, it's not mystical. It's just dumb. Your life's a joke. Well, that's a long way away from the Bishop of Perth. But you can see that there were pressures around if the entire Corinthian church was really uncomfortable with the notion as foundational to Christianity as resurrection. Do, 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 do you see? Today, we have other reasons for distancing ourselves from the resurrection. Today, one of the reasons is we spend so much time talking about the impact of Christianity on our lives now. How shall we live now because we're Christians now? What's the payoff for being a Christian now? That we don't spend a lot of time thinking about the fact that this world is just passing It is temporary, and the time is coming when we will stand before God. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. And ultimately, the Christian hope is not just living a little better here. It's a new heaven and a new earth, a home of resurrection, existence, and of righteousness. You ask Christians in persecuted parts of the world, they understand that. 
But by and large in the West, we're so comfortable that we enjoy much more thinking about the advantages of being a Christian now rather than thinking about the hope of, of, of Christian existence yet to come. Do, do, do you see? So we have another way of sort of downplaying the resurrection. We don't deny it. It's just not very important to us. Well, against such fundamental slants, John comes back pretty strongly, as we'll see in due course. But the particular form in which this dualism between matter and spirit emerged in Asia Minor is sometimes called docetism. It's from the Greek word dokeo, which means it appears or it seems to be the case. Docetism, a particular form of Gnosticism, had at least three major planks to it. Number one, it had a distorted view of the incarnation. It had a distorted view of Jesus. You can see why it would. If you're suspicious of that which is matter, then how can you believe that the eternal Son of God becomes a very physical human being? It's, it's like saying that good becomes evil. It, it's, it's like saying that something nice and beautiful becomes bad. Did you see? That's not the Christian view of the incarnation. The eternal Son of God becomes what he was not. He becomes a God-man, but he's a perfect God-man. He, he's a man who has been tempted, but yet without sin. There's nothing intrinsic to human nature that says it must be sinful. So as a result, people began to have uh, different uh, interpretations of some pretty fundamental passages. We'll see that this works out in 1 John in chapter 5. Some suggested that at Jesus' baptism, when the Spirit came upon Jesus, that's when somehow the Son of God or the Spirit, the, the, the Christ, the good part, comes upon Jesus as a, as a kind of... Um, a takeover, a kind of temporary indweller. He doesn't become a human being. He, he lives among us. He, 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 he actually takes up residence within Jesus. And, and then as Jesus, he, the Christ speaks and, and teaches us and gives us knowledge. He gives us gnosis about how to live and, and what, what, what godly living looks like. Then when Jesus cries on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's when the Son of God left him. So the Son of God didn't die on the cross. Rather, this Christ figure, this spirit figure, this Son of God figure, leaves Jesus, the man, to die on the cross. Jesus dies in agony on the cross. But what that means is the actual death of Christ didn't mean very much. What, what, what was really important was the instruction that we heard from the lips of Jesus, when it's the God-man speaking through him, somewhere between Jesus' baptism and his death on the cross. During that period, then the Christ is speaking to us and giving us knowledge. Now, can you see how fundamentally that changes all of Christianity? This John has written earlier, the passage that uh, Mark read earlier, the word became flesh that is the word became a human being not the word took up residence in a human being or the word temporarily visited a human being but the word became what he was not he became a human being 
And that means that when Jesus dies on the cross, it's not just Jesus the man that dies on the cross, it's Jesus the eternal son of God in, 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 in human flesh, and now, now become a human being who actually dies on the cross, which invests the cross with far more significance. It, it, it suddenly opens up what we mean by the death of Christ. What, what did the cross achieve? Under Gnostic thought of this particular variety, didn't achieve a blessed thing. The really important thing is not Jesus dying on a cross. That was after the Son of God left him in any case. And then likewise, the resurrection has to be reinterpreted too. So as a result, one of the confessions that First John makes again and again and again is that Jesus is the Christ or that the Son of God is the Christ. Take a look at 2.22. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. You see, they wanted to say that the Christ came on Jesus, but they wouldn't say that the Christ is Jesus or that Jesus is the Christ. Or again, chapter 4, verse 2. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And again, in 2 John, the same problem is still showing up. 2 John, verse 7. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge that Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh do not acknowledge, and that should be rendered, I think, Jesus is Christ come in the flesh. They, they, they have a fundamental aberration about something in basic Christian elementary truth. So they have a new theology, a new doctrine of Christ, a new Christology. But this new theology was also tied to a new morality. What do you do if you're a Gnostic about morals? In fact, Gnostics were divided on the subject. They went one of two directions. One wing said, in effect, that if matter is bad, what you've got to do is whip your body. You've got to beat your body, keep it in submission, knock it down. The only way that you can keep it under control is by being brutal to it. And so this ultimately led in the Middle Ages to monks whipping themselves, self-flagellation, to keep their body under submission. Do, 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 do you see? The other way that they could go is to say, well, if you do something with your body, it doesn't really matter because... Because eventually your body dies and it's, it's buried and molders away in the grave. But the real you, the real spiritual you, the, the, the really important you, the immortal you, is the non-material part. Thus I can demonstrate my freedom from, from foolish notions that imagine the body to be important by doing all kinds of disgusting things with my body because I thereby show that my body is not really important to me. It's, it's ultimately going to die and, and rot. It's, it's insignificant compared with my spirit. And, and thus, you could start speaking of what we would call immorality as merely bodily things. As soon as you start putting merely in front of moral categories, you know you're already in big problems. And at that point then, John wants to lay down some very strong principles. For example, he says, 2-4, Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. Or again, verse 6, 
Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Or again, 2.29, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. So as a result, John gives not only some confessional tests about what real Christianity looks like, some things that you really must believe about Christ, but he gives some moral tests. He says, if you claim to be a Christian and really know Jesus, and it has no bearing on how you live, you're not a Christian at all. Now, today, we don't have, in the Western world, a whole lot of immorality stemming from Gnosticism. On the other hand, there are lots and lots and lots of Christians today, people at least who claim themselves to be Christians, who talk fluently about Christian experience, but live lives indistinguishable from the world and the flesh and the devil. John won't have it. At the same time, he also insists that Christians do sin. You see, some Gnostics were so convinced that they were right that they said that they really didn't sin because because the real me doesn't sin. The real me is spiritual. The real me is, is independent of my body which rots in the grave. So they could claim a kind of sinless perfectionism even while, in fact, they were sinning like troopers in terms of what they were doing in their bodies. So John finds himself in the embarrassing position where he simultaneously has to say, listen, you do sin. You you, you are not sinlessly perfect. You, You are going to sin. So he says things like this. If we claim, 1.8, to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Or 1.10, if we claim we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar. Because God says, in fact, we have sinned. So he turns to the people on the one hand, he says, listen, you have sinned, you do sin. Don't kid yourself. And on the other hand, he says, and of course, if you're a real Christian, you don't sin and you mustn't sin. So he's, he's, he's caught between two pastoral poles that, that are not easy to unpack in this book, but they have a great deal to do with Christian understanding of what holiness looks like, whether in the first century or the 21st century. And then beyond that, there is what Stott calls a new super-spirituality. It's not a bad expression. C.S. Lewis somewhere warns against what he calls the inner ring syndrome, where you want to be on the inside track of some movement or other. And you can do that in a lot of different ways. I'm, I'm in a really live, vital Denomination. I go to a church that's got lots and lots of young people. And, and, and it might be true what you're saying descriptively, but it can also have a slight edge of superiority. I'm on the inside track and you're not. Or alternatively, I belong to one of the confessional, tr- traditional churches steeped in rootedness in history. Implication, your fly-by-night organization is just a will-o'-the-wisp and doesn't matter too much. Um, Now, of course, nobody would be quite so crass as to put it that way, but nevertheless, it's easy to have this uh, inner ring syndrome, being on the inside track. I speak in tongues and you don't. No, nobody would put it quite so crassly as that, but nevertheless, you can get that impression. Or conversely, I'm not so stupid as to speak in tongues, and you are. Um, I mean, you, 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 can, you can run that in quite a lot of different ways, but this inner ring syndrome of feeling somehow more spiritual than other people is easy to fall into again and again and again. 
but it is especially easy to fall into if you think that salvation turns on a certain kind of gnosis, knowledge. I know some things about Jesus and the gospel. I know some things about reality that you don't know. And because you don't know them, quite clearly, you're not all that spiritual. One brand of Gnosticism, now whether this was right behind John's, uh, what John was confronting here or not, we can't be quite sure. But one brand of Gnosticism actually divided all human beings into three types. Number one, the spiritual, the pneumatikoi. And they were Gnostics, people like that, who understood that you have an essentially spiritual nature and so on. And then the other end of that, the other end is the fleshly, the sarkikoi. That is, people who are essentially not more than animals. They're just very intelligent animals, but they have no spiritual vitality to them, no, no grasp of genuine gnosis, genuine knowledge. But they, they are nothing more than a, a rather distinguished breed of animals. And then in between, those that they call the, 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 uh, the sukikoi, that is, the, the, the soulish these soulish people could end up finally going either way. Um, it's not just sure how they'll end up, but the, the, the Gnostics sp- preach to them, and if, if, if these people then reject the Gnostic message, they show themselves to be animals. And if they accept the Gnostic message, then they show themselves to be spiritual. Well, that exerts a certain kind of pressure on it, doesn't it? I mean, do you want to be an animal or do you want to be spiritual? If you really are spiritual, then you belong to the inside ring. You, you, you belong to my group. But the result of all of that is you reject everybody who claims to be a Christian who does not agree with your particular interpretation of reality, your particular Gnosticism. Do, do, do you see what I mean? And it becomes wretchedly unloving, wretchedly proud, wretchedly condescending to those who disagree with you on anything. And so as a result, John has another test thrown in here. The question is whether or not you love the brothers and sisters. So again and again and again, you read things like this. Chapter 2. Dear friends, verse 7, I am not writing you a new command but an old one. This old command is the message you have heard. And what is it? Verse 9, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light. Or again in chapter 3. Verse 11, for this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. So John has these various tests. He has what might be called a truth test, a doctrinal test that certain that focuses on Jesus. Then he has a moral test that focuses on obeying Jesus. Then he has a love test, a social test on whether or not you 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 love brothers and sisters in Christ. And these things resurface again and again and again. And as far as John is concerned, demonstrating that you're a Christian is not the best two out of three. It's it's all or nothing. And what he will ultimately argue not until chapter 5, but what he will ultimately argue is that all of these tests, when you understand them are right, actually hang together. They're wonderful. They, they turn on regeneration. They, they, they turn on the fact that God actually takes human beings and changes them. 
And so instead of three disparate tests that he's made up, he will start showing all of these things hang together and it's an all or nothing proposition. This is what a real Christian looks like. Over here, not so sure that that's a Christian at all. And so actually, this book, rightly understood, becomes the foundation for a fair bit of elementary discernment about what genuine Christianity looks like. Now then, let's begin with a preface. Verses 1, 2, 3, and 4, and then we'll come to verse 5, and that's as far as we'll get tonight. The preface. It's divided into two parts. First, the incarnation and its historical reality, verses 1 and 2. That which was from the beginning. Now this little expression, from the beginning, is actually used in several different ways in John, and you have to figure out which one is in view here. Sometimes, from the beginning means from the beginning of the preaching of the gospel, from the beginning of when the gospel was preached. Jesus began to preach the gospel from that beginning. So, John 6, 64, John 15, 27, this from the beginning language is used that way. Second, it's sometimes used of the individual Christian's experience. That is, this is the message you heard from the beginning. Now, not necessarily from the beginning of Christian truth, because you may have heard it several decades later, or in your case, 2,000 years later. But from the beginning of when you heard the gospel, this is what you heard. Do you, do you see? So then it's the beginning of individual Christian experience. So, for example, 1 John 2, 7. Uh, thus we read, if you recall, Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. That is, since the beginning of your Christian experience. The first hearing these things. But sometimes, from the beginning means from the beginning absolutely. That is, from the beginning of absolutely everything, going back as far as God is. You can see that usage in chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. Look especially at verse 13. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And the reference in the context is to God. Well, that's not just from the beginning of the gospel or from the beginning of Christian experiences, from the absolute beginning. You see, you know God who is from the beginning. In the passage that was read to us from John 1, the prologue, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now that, I submit to you, is what is meant here in 1 John 1. That which was from the beginning... Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. Now do you see what John is doing? This is what we proclaim concerning the word of life. He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the Son of God. This was from the beginning. That is, as far back as God himself. But in due course, we heard this one who is from the beginning speak. And not only so, but we saw him with our eyes. And then we actually touched him. In other words, what he's trying to rule out is any sort of view of Christ in which Christ 
maybe from the beginning and then comes and speaks some words to us through Jesus. But that which is from the beginning is not Jesus. That which is from the beginning is only rests upon him or only speaks through him or uses his mouth to teach us some things. But no, what was from the beginning, whose words we heard, is also the one we saw. Now you can't see the one who is from the beginning unless he becomes a human being. But that's the whole point. He has become a human being. And not only so, that which was from the beginning, we have actually touched and handled ourselves. Not only in the days of Jesus' fleshly ministry, but in the resurrection too. You remember how Jesus turns to Thomas and says, uh, stretch out your hand and touch my side. Uh, Hear the wound prints. Touch, see, it's I, myself. In other words, John wants to make clear that the incarnation lies at the heart of all Christian reality. We're coming up to the Christmas season. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel, God with us. Now, in John's prologue in the Gospel, it's the Word which became flesh and lived among us. The Word was with God, and the Word was God, and then this Word, God's self-expression, became flesh, John 1.14. Here it runs a slightly different way. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have handled, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. And then you might think he would say, and the word became flesh. But instead of that, he says, and the life appeared. In other words, whether you think of the eternal Son of God as primarily God's self-expression, God's word, which became a human being, so John's gospel, or you think of the eternal Son of God as essentially life, This message of life. And the life appeared. You still come up with the same thing. You have incarnation. The life was manifest. The life appeared. We have seen it. We testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. This message is as important in our generation for the scientists trained in the empirical method or for radicals who point to myths, you cannot demythologize the incarnation. For mystics who neglect the objective nature of God's self-revelation. Do, do, do you see, this is not experiencing something of Jesus in your heart. It's something that happens in space-time history, and which John says, we saw, we heard, we touched, we handled. We have seen, heard, touched, handled that which went back to the very beginning to eternity past. That's the heart of the incarnation. That's the first point. Then second, in the prologue, he then gives the purpose of writing, verses 3 and 4. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. Now, 
To understand what John is doing in this step of the argument, you have to remember what fellowship does and does not mean in the New Testament. Today we speak of Christian fellowship as being roughly friendship amongst Christians. If you have a cup of tea with a pagan neighbor over the back fence, that's friendship. You have a pagan you have a cup of tea with a Christian neighbor over the back fence, then it's fellowship. <laughs> so you come out of church and you, you have one of these churches where, there's, where there, it, it, there, there's tea and scones or whatever offered after the morning service. And, um, and, and so, so you sit around and talk about the football game or um, a, a recent film that has just appeared or... Um, how you're doing at your university, or whatever it is you're talking about. And, and it doesn't matter, because you're doing it with Christians, you're having a fellowship hour. Did, did, did you see? And, and, and thus, fellowship has come to mean nothing more than Christian friendship. Now, I'm not trying to demean Christian friendship. I'm merely trying to say that's not what fellowship meant in the New Testament, or that's only one very small part of it. Fellowship, koinonia in the New Testament, is very often an economic term. So that if two chaps go and buy a boat and start a fishing company, they've entered into a fellowship. That is, they've entered into a partnership. Fellowship is some joint venture where both of you who have, or all of you, have, have poured in agreed resources in a common goal, in a common shared venture. That's what Christian fellowship is. So you enter into fellowship with missionaries in 2nd and 3rd John and in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, you enter into fellowship with them by supporting them. That is, you're pouring in joint resources. One of you is putting in money and others actually going or actually using the money in, in some sort of mission-oriented way, and thus you are in fellowship with them. Do, 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 do you see? Now, within that framework, then, we can speak of the local church as a Christian fellowship, and one would like to think there's some friendship going on there too. But, but, but what's really going on there is a shared venture, a shared mission, a shared goal to, to know Christ and to make Christ known. Now, John takes that language and ratchets, ratchets it up in a certain direction. He says, in effect, the reason why we have proclaimed this message about Christ to you that is, this Christ who is from eternity, whom we have heard and seen and touched. The reason why we proclaim this is that you might have fellowship with us. That is, have the same joint venture, the same joint perspective, the same shared commitments with respect to this Christ. And our fellowship... John says, that is, we apostles, we first witnesses, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. Now do you see what John is saying? He is claiming that that first generation of witnesses somehow mediate that initial revelation to later believers. The only way you can enter into the glory of God's self-disclosure in the revelation of the eternal Son in a space-time human being called Jesus of Nazareth. The only way you can enter into a joint fellowship, a joint commitment, a joint mission under his lordship is, is if you have the right perspective on him. And where do you get that right perspective? 
Well, from the first witnesses who saw him who was from the beginning and heard him and touched him and so on. You must, in other words, be in fellowship with the apostles. Because their fellowship is with the Father and his Son. They have understood what the gospel is about since they are there as the mediators of what God did at a certain space and time in history. Now, at one level, this is a very simple confession, but it is devastatingly different from the claims made in just about every other world religion. Supposing you're a Buddhist, a devout Buddhist. There are different kinds of Buddhists, of course, but if you could prove somehow that Gautama, the Buddha, never lived, would you destroy Buddhism? Nah. It's his philosophy that is important, not claims about the man himself. Supposing you could prove in Hinduism that Krishna never lived, would you destroy Hinduism? No, there are millions of Hindu gods. You always go down the street to a Shiva temple. Supposing you could prove that Jesus never lived. Or that he never rose from the dead. You have utterly and completely and totally destroyed Christianity, despite the Archbishop of Perth. Do, 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 do you see? Because Christian claims depend on something, on revelation that took place in space, time, history. And our access to such data is through witnesses. So although the New Testament documents can be understood in a lot of different ways, they contribute different things, one of the things they contribute is eyewitness testimony. So that Christianity is not simply a philosophy. Christmas season will be reintroduced to a Christmas carol and Scrooge and Christmas past and Christmas present, Christmas future, and what the real Christmas is all about. It turns out that the real Christmas, according to Dickens, is all about being nice and generous. Well, of course, Christians should be nice and generous. Who wants to dispute that? But that doesn't make you a Christian. You can be a Buddhist or a Muslim or a pagan or a secularist, be nice. No, in order to be a Christian, to receive this revelation from God that has the eternal son becoming a human being and all that follows from that, including his death, as we'll see tomorrow morning, then we have to understand that this revelation actually took place in real history and was of the stuff of the witnessable. Recently at Trinity, we celebrated the 100th anniversary of the birth of Carl F.H. Henry. Carl Henry doesn't mean much to many people on this side of the pond, but in North America, he was astonishingly important in 20th century evangelicalism. He was the founding editor of Christianity Today. In 1966, he was the one who organized the first World Council on Evangelism in Berlin, which ultimately fed into the Lausanne movement and so on. 
Um, he was one of those responsible for founding the National Association of Evangelicals. He was widely viewed as sort of America's uh, premier evangelical thinker when it came to interacting with the press and so forth. In the 1970s, he was on the East Coast as one of the editor, journalists, theologians who was interviewing Karl Barth, a well-known Swiss theologian. And um, Barth's views on so many things were helpful and godly and stimulating and right and stood very strongly against the kind of classic liberalism that was trying to demythologize everything and so on. But at the same time, Carl Henry had some suspicions about what Bart really meant on certain points. And so at the question and answer time, Carl got up and said, Professor Bart, I'm Carl Henry, editor of Christianity Today, Do you think that the resurrection of Jesus was the kind of event that could have been written about by a modern journalist? In other words, if a modern journalist had been there with a camera, taking notes of what took place at the empty tomb, was it the sort of event that was newsworthy today? public truth, public event happening in a public place. Was it that sort of event? Or was it something privatized and secret or esoteric, but not public, not not historical in that sense? Bart snapped back. Did you say Christianity today or Christianity yesterday? Carl replied, Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever, and sat down. You see, there's a Kantian element in Barth's thinking about, 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 about the incarnation. That is, there is something that is taking place at a deep, for those of you in philosophy, noumenal level, that is, at the mind-spirit level. But what takes place at the phenomenal level, that is, at the level of history and event and touchability, but we can talk about those things because we see them and touch them, but we have no idea how they actually connect with what is really real behind the scenes. And for Bart, he wanted the resurrection to be really real somehow behind the scenes, but he didn't much care if it was the sort of event that takes place in space-time history. Did you see? In fact, the Germans decided that there were two different words for history, and one had to do with history in space and time, the way you and I think of history, what actually takes place. And the other one dealt with this Kantian, rather more ephemeral world. I know what John would say about that. I I, I know what Paul would say about that. The incarnation of God, what we celebrate at Christmas, is the Word became flesh. What we have seen, what we have heard, what we have touched is of a peace with what was in eternity past. That's the miracle of what takes place in that little cattle shed. And our only access to it is through witnesses. It's our only access. And those people came to know that God manifested himself 
in the flesh and ultimately in his death and resurrection witnessed and had fellowship with God because of what God had done in Christ Jesus. And if we are to have fellowship with God and what God has done in Christ Jesus, we must have fellowship with the mediators of that revelation, namely the apostles and those with them, those first 500 witnesses. And for us, since we cannot go and have a wee private conversation with John on our own, what that really means is if we are to have fellowship with this God, we must have fellowship with the only residue of apostolic witness we've got, namely the New Testament. You step aside from fellowship in this witness and you're cutting yourself off from fellowship with God. And we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the way the structure works. But there's a second purpose in writing, not only fellowship but also joy. We write this to make our joy complete. Many of our translations have We write this to make your joy complete. The difference between our joy and your joy in the Greek New Testament is one letter. And as the way it was probably pronounced in the first century, it was pronounced the same way. And so it was easy to make a mistake. The manuscripts are evenly divided. I have no idea what's original here. And it doesn't really make a lot of difference. Because what John is saying is, Genuine Christian joy, the apostolic joy, is in this circle of those who are saved and gain this knowledge of God, expanding and expanding and expanding. So we proclaim this so that our joy might be complete. Elsewhere he says in in 3 John, I have no greater joy than to know that my children walk according to the truth. Do you see? But he also wants others, your joy. He wants their joy to be complete as they come to know this God who has manifested himself in Christ Jesus including the provision of sins forgiven that he proceeds to talk about in the next verses. Last step. He's talked about this message that he's given, and now he sums it up. But he does so in a rather remarkable way. We come now in the book to the central message, the character of a God and its implications. Now, the implications run well into chapter 2. We'll see them tomorrow morning. But the central message itself is found in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. Hear this passing on of things. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And you stop and think, wait a minute. How does this bear on anything we've done so far? No mention of the incarnation. How does this further the argument? In fact, most religions, if they speak of God at all, Speak of God using light as one of the metaphors. I mean, who, except maybe some forms of Satanists, want to go around saying that God is darkness? So so light is a common religious metaphor. Why, Why is this treated as if it's so blisteringly important, so central to all that John is going to do? Well, first of all, it's worth remembering that in the Old Testament, when light is used metaphorically, it tends to run in one of two directions. Either light 
is talking about God's self-disclosure, his revelation. So that the entrance of your word brings light. Here light is truth from God and darkness is ignorance and sin and, and, and error. Walk in the light, we're told again and again. That is in the light of God's revelation. But sometimes light brings up ideas of holiness, righteousness, purity, integrity. In this case, darkness is sin and corruption and rebellion and decay. For example, in Isaiah 5.20, people are so perverse, Isaiah says, that they call evil good and good evil. They put light for darkness and darkness for light. Do you see? Now, in fact, this sort of mixing up of the two is very common in metaphorical use of light in the New Testament. Here's Paul writing to the Ephesian church. 5.8, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. So now you are light in the Lord. That is, you received revelation from him. Live as children of light. That's a moral overtone. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed to the light becomes visible, and everything that is illumined becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. You find those sorts of metaphorical uses of light again and again and again, focusing on, on the one hand, revelation, and on the other hand, integrity, righteousness. So what is John doing here? He is saying that the image of God as light is so unqualified, he is so perfect in his self-disclosure, so perfect in his righteousness, so perfect in his integrity, that for people to come along and then start playing theological word games to get themselves off the hook is disgusting. Well, well, yes, God is light in the spiritual realm, but not in the physical realm. I, I'm, I'm really full of goodness and righteousness because I've received the revelation from God. And if in my body I, I live like the world and the flesh and the devil, it, 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 that's just my body. It, it, it doesn't really matter. And God will forgive me in any case, won't he? Oh, we see this in many, many different ways. I remember many moons ago when I was studying in Germany trying to improve my German. In this institute where I was studying, there was an African from French West Africa who is also trying to improve his German. And uh, because I was brought up in French and he was from French West Africa, our common language was, was French. And every once in a while when we got thoroughly tired of German, we'd go and have a meal together and talk French. And um, as I got to know him as the weeks went by, I discovered that um, once a week or so he would go to the red light district in town and pay his money and, and have a woman. But by this time, I knew him well enough that I knew that his wife, meanwhile, was in London where she was trying to finish her medical degree. He was in Germany trying to improve his German to get a PhD in, in engineering at a German university. And so eventually, when I got to know him well enough, I, I said to him one day, what would you say if you found out that your wife in London were doing the same sort of thing, finding somebody to shack up with every once in a while? What, 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 what would you say? How would you respond to that? You know, Subtle old Don trying to induce a little bit of guilt to show him Jesus. And he said, oh, I'd kill her. I'd kill her. I said, well, that, that's a bit 
two-faced, isn't it? I mean, uh, you, you do it, but you'd kill her if she did it? Oh, you don't understand. He said, for my tribe, she would be dishonoring me. It would be a dishonorable thing to do. In, in my tribe, uh, um, men have the right to sleep around, but, 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 but the women don't. I said, but you told me that you were brought up in a, in, in a Christian mission school. You, you know, you know that, that, that the God of the Bible doesn't grade on a curve like that, one set of standards for men and one set of standards for women. Oh, he said, le bon Dieu doit nous pardonner, c'est son métier. God is good, he's bound to forgive us, that's his job. Uttering the words, actually, of Catherine the Great. Boy, there are a lot of people in our culture that think of God like that, don't they? But supposing God is not just spongy sentimentality, but God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. None. Supposing you you say, well, you know, you have your opinion and I have my opinion and it doesn't really matter. We all have our different opinions. But supposing this God has revealed himself. Undoubtedly, there are some things in this revelation that we might disagree with. But where texts are clear and our hesitation to accept them is really bound up with being uncomfortable with what God has said. So, so that we constantly try to bury what God actually says by appealing to the vagaries of interpretation. Then if you take seriously the notion that God is light and in him is no darkness at all, then it suddenly becomes really important to understand him as he's disclosed himself. And then you remember how light features in so many of God's self-disclosures in Scripture. Ezekiel's visions with its lightning, the glory on Moses' face, Christ's transfiguration, John's vision of the ascended Jesus in Revelation 1, his face as bright as the noonday sun, the light surrounding Paul on the Damascus road, Hebrews reminding us our God is a consuming fire. In him is no darkness at all. Some of us think that God is sometimes good and sometimes a bit nasty. James 1 tells us, in him there is no shadow due to turning. God is good, 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 only good, 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 because in him is no darkness at all. And then we understand some older Christian hymns that we have forgotten to sing. Eternal light, eternal light, how pure the soul must be when placed within thy searching sight it shrinks not, but with calm delight can gaze and look on thee. The spirits that surround thy throne may bear this burning bliss, but that is surely theirs alone, for they have never, never known a fallen world like this. Oh, how shall I, whose native sphere is dark, whose mind is dim, before the ineffable appear, and on my naked spirit bear that uncreated beam? There is a way for man to rise to that sublime abode, an offering and a sacrifice, the Holy Spirit's energies, an advocate with God. These, these prepare us for the sight of holiness above. 
the sons of ignorance and night, may dwell in the eternal light through the eternal love. And that prepares us for the next verses of this book. Let us pray. Merciful God, as we try to understand this book, first of all, against the background of the first century, grant that the eyes of our hearts may be open so that we see how it applies all the more powerfully to us and the vagaries and missteps of our cultural heritage. What a God you are the God of light, of revelation, of truth, of righteousness, with no darkness at all. So draw us to this light by the sacrifice you yourself have provided in the eternal Son who became a human being and bore our sin in his own body on the tree. For Jesus' sake. Amen.